Good morning. Good morning. That was an interesting experience. I, when I sat down at the piano, there was like three people in the room. <laughs> I got up and turned around like, Whoo. Happy Easter. I, uh, I, uh, I probably should have done a lecture on Easter, but I'm a little bit too much of an iconoclast for that, although I promised to make at least one reference to it. For those of you who don't know, Easter, it's quite a day. It's the day that uh, Jesus rose from the dead, according to the traditions of the Christians. This morning, before the sun came up, I believe it was Mary and Martha, went to the tomb with a mixture of spices to anoint the body as an offering, and when they got there, the stone was rolled back, and sitting on the stone, they said, was, a, was a, an angel whose appearance was like lightning, white as lightning. And the angel said to them, I know that you have come seeking Jesus of Nazareth, but I tell you, he is not here. He has risen. Go and tell his disciples, and he will appear to you then. So they go in great confusion, great joy, kind of a very odd mood, uh, to tell the disciples, and of course the disciples were sort of in hiding at that time, because uh, they didn't want to be next, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, they try and convince them that they had seen Jesus, and uh, that's when, uh, uh, well, Peter says, uh, and Thomas too, so I think it was doubting Thomas, Thomas says, unless I see his hands and touch them and see his feet, I won't believe it. And so later on, when they're on the, on the road walking somewhere, Jesus appears, and he calls Thomas over and he says, here are my hands, touch them, see the wound in my side. And <laughs> of course, Thomas then falls down on the ground and worships him as, as, as the Lord. So it is a great day and it's very nice to have that idea running in the background of our thoughts this morning uh, because um, the topic is a challenging one, but I thought it was a, one that uh, probably needs to be discussed. I'm going to the topic is, the, the title, as you know, is called The View From Here, and uh, we're going to talk about depression and how to deal with it and uh, uh, techniques for getting out of it and for creating a, and building a successful life around it, despite it. So, um, but before we do that, of course, we're going to jump into Hafiz and, uh, and then our reminder of, the, of our three most important things. Hafiz has a great poem this morning called Why All of This Talk? Why all of this talk of the beloved, of music and dancing, and the liquid ruby light we can lift in a cup? Because it is low tide, a very low tide in this age and around most hearts, we are exquisite coral reefs, reefs dying when exposed to the air and to strange elements. God is that wine ocean we crave, we miss, flowing in and out of our pores. So to center ourselves, I'd like to bring our attention to the most important things about spiritual life. Uh, if we don't remember anything else from any lecture or any scripture and we hold on to these three things, uh, we'll be all right. Uh, Ramakrishna said the most important aspect of spiritual life was your earnestness and your sincerity as you approach it. And to, uh, to have that, uh, that inner integrity, you know, that this really is what I want, or this is really what I want to know. Actually, if you don't want anything in particular, you just want to know. Just that quest to understand. And uh, Ramakrishna promises that if you're earnest and you're sincere, 
in, uh, in your quest that the universe of God, Mother, will take care of the rest herself. Even if you start off on a wrong path or you're going merrily down the wrong way, she'll send one to tap you on the shoulder and say, uh, you need to go the other way <laughs> to get where you're going. So uh, our commitment then this morning to each other and to this time is, a, is one of sincerity and earnestness and to find that place inside. The second one comes from our beloved Jesus when he was asked by the, some of the leadership of the Jewish community. They were trying to trap him, of course, and uh, asked him, so what is the most important commandment? What's the most important thing? And Jesus says right away, he says, the, first, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I'm always happy to remind myself that in Vedanta, the two are one, that we are all made in the image of God. We all have stamps of the divine within us. And to see that divinity within each of us and to honor that, to love that, uh, and to build and emphasize that with each other, to manifest love. That uh, It's always been my, my dream for the church I went to or ever was a part of, and, and it's certainly my vision and my dream for my experience here with us is for us to manifest that with each other, for this place to become a special place because love manifests here, because uh, we reach out, because we care. We're a place that, that opens our hearts really not only to each other but to the world and to do our best to, um, to become an influence for that, for manifesting God, manifesting love in this world during this very low tide, as Hafiz says. And then the final one, again, comes back to Ramakrishna when he was sitting on the Ganga doing his practice and was throwing out the pairs of opposites because uh, in Vedanta philosophy, the ideas of this whole universe is just pairs of opposites, good and bad, happy, sad, man, woman, tall, short, rich, poor. And that life, for those who, who have no uh, spiritual core to them, life is just bouncing back and forth between opposites. It's just an experience, just boom, 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 good, bad, good, bad. You know, and we're the constant quest of trying to stay on the good side. But Vivekananda, unfortunately, assures us that there will always be, always be equal measures of misery and happiness. And so despite our best efforts to stay on the happy side of the scale, there's going to be the other side as well, that, that the two, one can't exist without the other. So in that frame, and to have, uh, so when he came to throwing out truth and untruth, he realized that he wasn't able to do that, that truth is a fundamental part of, of spiritual life, of life. <laughs> you know, to make sense of your place in the world, of, your, of who you are, what your true nature is, truth is a necessary component. That inner integrity of the mind, the mouth, and the heart all matching in what they say all being in alignment. So with that commitment, with those three things well established, we're going to jump into our conversation about the view from here. Now I chose the topic uh, uh, on, on depression because I, I've actually, I've, I've heard a lot of it <laughs> going around. It's not something that a lot of people talk about and people who suffer from it are kind of ashamed to mention it. It seems to have somewhat of a cultural uh, taboo around being a depressed person, which makes it even worse because you get even more isolated when you're stuck in that situation. 
And I called the, uh, the lesson the, the view from here to kind of draw attention to, to what is the view from here and where is here. Because when you're in a depressed state, when you're down, you can't see the light. You can't, it's, you can't be convinced that things are fixable or that they are better or that there's a loving nature to the universe. You know, you're in that, in that dark. And uh, the idea or the vision, not vision, but the, the visuals of it came to me. I remember back in like 1985, uh, when I was uh, I was working for a children's home in Texas, and I took all these kids, these rugrats, to the beach down at South Padre Island. And uh, while they were being watched by someone else, me and my assistant decided that we would swim out in the uh, ocean there to uh, where the white caps were breaking. We thought that would be cool. And um, there's one thing that waves have in common with mountains, and that is that they look a lot closer than they are. <laughs> like, like Zebulon Pike, when he was exploring the, the, the Midwest, he saw Pike's Peak like a month before they got there. And it's really funny because he was writing a journal, and in his journal he's constantly saying, we should reach the peak tomorrow. We should reach the peak within the next three days. We should, you know, and it goes on for almost a month. He's approaching Pike's Peak. And so I found myself in the same situation. Me and my assistant were swimming out to these waves, and uh, they just, they constantly looked like they were almost there, like the white caps were just almost there. But we just, ne- we never got there. And we were paying so much attention to getting there that we hadn't really paid attention to how far out we had swum. And, or is it swum or swam? I don't know. Anyway, past tense of swim. We were out there and so far out that we were beyond the waves. You know, at the shore, there's just the waves. They kind of come in one after the other. But when you're out in, the, out in the sea, there's waves on top of waves. And so, like, there's these bowls, you know, that you can be down in, and then there's waves around the bowl or going through the bowl. And when you're down in one of these bowls, you can't see anything around you. The horizon is a circle of water around you. And when you're swimming and you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're in a bowl and you're looking around, you don't know which way to swim until that, you know, that bowl comes up and then suddenly you're on a hill and then you can kind of get a sweep and you angle yourself toward the shore and keep going. We were way out there. We were in danger. And uh, I remember the sense of panic every time I went down into one of those bowls, not being able to see where I was and really wondering if I was going to make it back uh, to the shore and how stupid I had been to become a headline, <laughs> you know, swimming out after something you couldn't reach anyway. And I thought that was a great metaphor for depression. Um, I wanted to share with you something I don't often talk about. But in 2008, I was uh, uh, diagnosed with depression. Uh, I was living in the monastery in San Francisco, and I'd been in the center for about eight years. And uh, I'm always a little hesitant to talk about it, because who wants to hear about a monk who's, who was depressed, <laughs> you know, who actually went to therapy? I've done it all. I have no, no dignity to maintain at this point in my life, so I'll just go ahead and lay it out there for you. I was clinically depressed and living in the monastery, and I, was, I had my office in the basement of the monastery, and things were getting pretty serious to the point uh, that I felt like I really needed to talk to somebody, like the, the, the thoughts were getting pretty desperate. And I didn't want to talk to the Swami, and I didn't want to talk to the devotees because I, I saw the the weirdness of being a monk who's depressed. That just didn't make sense to me. So I, I went to a, a, a therapist on the side and uh, spent a year working through some things, and uh, she gave me some techniques, which turned out to be Vedantic. I mean, uh, clin- uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is all built around discrimination and uh, 
checking, looking at the mind and finding out where your thoughts are coming from, where your motives are going, and what's happening with that. So we're going to, the things I talk about this morning are roughly based on cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. If you want to look it up, or if you're feeling like you have some challenges with depression, it's a great set of tools for helping you to get through um, that struggle. Uh, They wanted to put me on drugs, uh, antidepressants, of course, and uh, I had to do some real soul-searching about it um, at the time. I was afraid that they would make me something different than I was or that, you know, because in, in my practice, in spiritual practice, you, you want to deal with what's really going on inside so that you can, you know, kind of get that ship forward. And I was afraid that if I was on drugs that I wouldn't have a clear picture of what was going on inside and that I wouldn't be able to navigate through. But uh, since the doctor was saying uh, that I that there was something that there actually was some sort of chemical or something, she told me what it was, I don't remember, that was being released in my brain that was kind of causing the imbalance and, you know, these depressions would come out of nowhere. They weren't, they weren't based on something. It wasn't like somebody hit me and then I was depressed. It was, <laughs> it was like I'd be go, happily going along and suddenly like, whoomp, there, you know, the world would just turn black and nothing was good and there was no way out. And uh, so I decided to take the drugs. I decided, okay, I'll go on antidepressants. And uh, it was a big quandary for me because I I didn't like I didn't like it I didn't like it because I was a monk and because I'm a spiritual seeker and I thought if my practice and my life isn't isn't even enough to pull me out of this out of depression what good is it what 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 good is that why why am I doing this so I took the I took the drugs for a year with the idea of seeing what the effect was first of all see if they did help they did they kind of brought the ends in so that my depressions weren't quite as dark, you know. So they gave me a new idea of what was normal. And after I'd been taking them for about a year, I decided of my own accord that I would slowly taper them off and not take them and uh, and then depend on my practice, depend on my uh, meditations and on uh, the discrimination that I had learned through CBT, through the, the cognitive behavioral therapy, to to work with it from there. And uh, we've I, I say I've been successful. I feel like I've been successful. It's been many years now. And uh, the moods are those things sometimes still come. You know, they, that, that wave kind of comes over. But now I know it's a wave. Now I know that it's a thing. You know, that it's separate from me. So uh, it's, it's pertinent to talk about one because I know people suffer from it. Uh, and some people suffer uh, deeply from it. And because we don't talk about it, I thought that I would put it in a public forum and to, to look at these things more closely. Uh, interestingly enough, I also saw this week, um, when you look at causes of uh, depression, what happens, what's causing it, there's a very interesting study that just came out yesterday. I saw it on Slashdot.org. It says, the, to- the more time young adults spend on social media, the more likely they are to become depressed, a study has found. Of the 19 to 32-year-olds who took part in the research, those who checked social media most frequently throughout the week were 2.7 times more likely to develop depression than those who checked least often. They uh, had uh, 2,000 U.S. Participates, uh, participants in the social media study. For an av- they spent an average of 61 minutes every day visiting accounts 30 times per week. Of them, a quarter were found to have high indicators of depression. There is a potential vicious circle. People who become depressed often turn to social media for support, but their excessive engagement with it might only serve to exacerbate their depression. 
So uh, that was an interesting thing to me, one, because so many people are engaged in the social media, and I know that, that, that there's a certain percentage of those folks who are doing it almost almost exclusively, you know, just, just it's really, it's, it's a really a tempting trap. I mean, there was a time that I, when WordPress was the big thing, and I decided, oh, that would be cool, I'll do a daily little WordPress, just sort of as a journal for myself. And uh, so I, I started doing that, and I had like one to three visitors a day. So it was something that I didn't really pay much attention to, and I was just happily kind of going on, really more for my own self, just kind of having a journal. But I don't know if, you, if you've, any of you have ever done WordPress. When you log into your WordPress account, the first thing they put in front of you is your charts, your stats. You know, and it's got a line: how many people have come to visit, how many people come this week and this month, and what's your average. And then they've got this line chart of the month so far and you can't get around it you can't log into your account and just write something without having to see your stats knowing that it was zero to three people a day that were looking at my thing it wasn't that big of a deal but one of the devotees in san francisco who was uh, actually does social uh, media for a living getting companies into social media she visited my site and she reposted one of my things that i had said that day and like all of a sudden I went into my account and that next morning and like 90 people had read my my blog yesterday I was like oh my god (laughs) 90 people suddenly this thing I was just doing myself wasn't for myself anymore now there were 90 people and uh, you know of course as the week went on that number slowly (laughs) started coming back down again and I felt that inner panic like oh I have to type something, I have to make something interesting. I have, to, I, have to, I have to make up something really good, you know, to get my readership back up there again. And uh, as soon as I saw that happening, I logged out and I've never logged in again because I saw, I saw the trap. I understood the trap of social media. I was like, oh my God, that, that for my character could totally pull me in there. I would be there for days. I mean, I'd be up here lecturing and be like, just a minute. <laughs> Smile for your selfie. I'm lecturing, Mom. You know, (laughs) like that. But to know that those things don't give you what you need. Uh, You know, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says, When a man thinks of the objects, attachment to them arises, and from this attachment, desire is born, and from desire, anger arises. And from anger comes delusion, and from delusion, the loss of memory, and from the loss of memory, the destruction of discrimination, and from the destruction of discrimination, he perishes. But the self-controlled man, moving amongst objects with the senses under restraint and free from attraction and repulsion, attains to peace. Now we're going to spend a little bit more time on that, but it's one of the causes. You know, according to Vedanta, according to the philosophy that we're studying, this world doesn't have a positive or negative value. We've talked about that many times, that it's you that bring the value to the world. You make things beautiful, you make things ugly, you make things desirable, not desirable. That things in the world are only reflections of that inner self. That the world reflects you. It reflects where you are. So that uh, you get you where you are at in your psyche then reflects back to you in the world around you. Which is quite dangerous when you don't know that. When you don't know that when you're down things are going to kind of reinforce that because they're a reflection around you. And uh, I've shared this example before, I know also, but it's a very uh, pertinent one. Uh, two days 
I went for a walk down Union Street in San Francisco. Now, Union Street is a very trendy street in San Francisco. Lots of wealthy, young hipsters running around, letting the world know how young and beautiful they are, how successful they are. And then, uh, and then there was, uh, and then there was uh, me. And uh, I was walking down the street that day, and I kind of noticed occasionally catching people looking at me. For whatever reason, God only knows. They may not even actually been doing it. I may have just randomly saw people looking at me. But my mind, my ego, thought, hmm, I must look pretty good. (laughs) They must like something. So, uh, you know, of course, that thought goes through my head. Of course, now, the next day, and this is, this is not kidding, it didn't, it didn't make a big impression on me, I promise. It was just a thought that went through my head that I noticed on that walk. And the following day, the following morning, I had the, you know, the, any, any teenager's nightmare. I woke up and had this big old hideous thing on my cheek that I tried to fix, and it just made it worse. So I had this horrible, you know, blemish, <laughs> destroyed blemish on my face. And I was walking down the same street doing my same walk, and noticed people looking at me and felt immediately like, oh, my God, is it, is it bleeding? You know, <laughs> is there like blood running down my face? So you're doing that check and you're checking and trying to be nonchalant, checking in the store window reflection, which isn't bright enough to see. You know? You're trying to find out what's going on. But after that had been going on and I continued on my walk, because I like to think about things, I realized the discrepancy at hand there, that the day before... I was walking down the street and saw people looking at me, and I had assumed it was because I'm so obviously good-looking that people were appreciating that. And the very next day, I'm walking down the street, people are also looking at me, and my first assumption is, oh, my gosh, my face is bleeding hideously in front of everybody. You know, so there's that insecurity. And I began to see, wow, it's my idea of self that affects my interpretation of the world around me, you know, that I see these things, and I put the value out there. Those people were just looking. Who knows what they were looking at? People, you don't walk with your eyes closed, so you're going to look at somebody and somebody's going to notice it. And that's probably the extent of things. But we assign value to things in there, and it reinforces an idea, a lower idea of self, a body-identified version of self. And so when the Gita says, you know, the man that thinks of objects, when you Think about these things in the world, the, the, the objects that your senses are picking up, you know, like people would be at people when you're walking down the street. When you see those things, if you want to be good-looking or if you think yourself good-looking and you kind of want that reinforcement, you start working for that reinforcement, right? You start dressing for it. You start doing your makeup for it. You start going to the gym for it. You, know, you start eating for it. You start doing everything for it if you let it go to its nth degree. I mean, there's no limit to it. And uh, it's one of the great joys of living in Hollywood is seeing the outrageous limits that people go to for beauty. I mean, you know, just stretching it back and lifting it up, you know, and like dying all colors, you know. It's, I mean, in Hollywood, of all places, you really, really see that you can go as far as you want to go, you know. I heard, I've heard of one of the, one of the big stars, I won't mention her because she might listen to my lecture, that uh, she spent $70 million on, on, on uh, plastic surgeries. You know, I guess if you got it, you should spend it, maybe. <laughs> anyway, 
So it goes on and it gets into this big circle. You know, it's like when you think of these things or think about these things, when they become important to you, when you don't let them go out of your head, you know, I want that French fry. You can say no the first time, but then you think about the French fry again. And you say no again the second time, but not quite as adamantly, you know. And then that, then you walk by another restaurant, that smell of fried food comes out, and you're thinking about that French fry again. Third time, no, I'm not going to eat that French fry. You know, and then you walk by the street vendor, French fries, French fries. And eventually you weaken, right? Eventually you weaken, you give in, you eat the French fry. And, of course, everything ends. It's all over at that point. But uh, this notion that, that when you attach to them, you know, you, they, you begin to seek them out. You begin to see them in your environment. You begin to pull yourself toward those kinds of people or those kinds of events or those uh, types of objects, you know. <laughs> you go out and buy frozen fries and put them in the freezer. You start filling your life with it. And then when that, uh, from that comes desire, you know, that, that recurring idea. If you had never eaten a French fry in your life, you would never want a French fry because you don't know what a French fry is. Who cares? So what? Yeah, it smells great. So you appreciate the smell and move on. But if you've taken of it, then you've got a little, hmm, oh, yeah, that was really good, you know, and it draws you back again. And then it says uh, that from this desire, anger arises. Now, how does anger come from desire? Anger comes from thwarted desire. You know, when you can't get what you want, that that irritation arises, you know. Uh, oh, God, I'd, I tell you, that's a real exercise in the early years of the monastery when all of your <laughs> billions of desires that you're trying to have left behind and it's so fresh on your mind, you know, when you've only been in the monastery a couple of years, it's so fresh and everything's pulling you. You know, you're walking down the street and everything, I mean, you want everything. <laughs> and you're sitting there and you just... It gets irritating, and so you start getting irritable. You know, you start you start getting turned around in your thinking. It puts you in a mood, and uh, others start paying the price from it. You know, and so from this anger, then comes delusion, because then you start trying to organize your way in a in a organize your life in a way that you're able to fulfill your desires, and so your desires become your guide, become the thing that you start building your life around. And when you've done that, that is delusion. That's living in the state of delusion because you're living to fulfill something, one, that can't be fulfilled because you've never eaten one French fry and decided that was enough forever. You have to finish that bag, you know, potato chips, you know, or that whole bowl of popcorn, which I do quite frequently. So it goes on like that. So this delusion begins. Your, your life starts to... Be built, your sense of values, your sense of what you're going to do and what's going to happen, get built around a moving target that can't, that can't give you what it promises. And so that life gets out of whack, exactly. Starts spinning, starts getting oblong, starts looking kind of crazy, you know. Your hair starts getting greasy, you start getting fat, you start finding that you don't cut your nails and you're sitting in front of your social media thing for... 19 hours a day, and <laughs> everything seems normal. Everybody piles pizza boxes around their room, you know. <laughs> these are those. These actually happen. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of reddit.com, you can see pictures of hoarding all the time. <laughs> you're just saying, you just wonder, how does that happen? My God, how, how can you possibly walk into a house and not know that you've got a problem, <laughs> you know? That's how it happens, just little by little like that. Your objects of desire become so focused and so keen, and you're, you're so intent on this thing, everything else falls apart. You just, don't, you just don't see it, or you don't know what to do with it. And that's where our next verse, we're going to go to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden. 
When the woman saw that the fruit on the tree was good, this is Eve, that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, that it was obviously desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they made a fig leaf outfit together and ran and covered themselves in their fig leaves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Okay. One of the second causes of this depression is the cycle that happens because of it. When you start uh, not dealing with things in your life because of desire, you know, if you laziness, for instance, you know, you don't pay your bills. And the bills sit there, and then the second round comes, and then the third round comes, and then you don't even want to open them anymore because you know that now they've doubled. <laughs> you know, the penalties on top of them, and the ink's gotten really bright red and huge, and you're in big trouble. And you just keep not dealing with it because you don't want to look at it. You keep turning from your problem, and it gets deeper and becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger stress that sits behind you every time you look at it, and you're stuck. You can't turn around and face it. That's, what the, that's, that's what's being depicted here. You know, the Garden of Eden happens, unfolds every moment of the day. You know, you're sitting at peace in your mind, and then you smell that pizza. And you look at that pizza, and you say, obviously that pizza's good for eating, and it sure is pleasant to the senses, just like that apple was. And uh, the wisdom is, I want it, I should have it. And you go by, and you get that piece of pizza, and, uh, and on it goes, and then, you know, you, you, you eat too much of it, for the fourth day in a row and you start getting a little heavier and it's a lot harder to lose 20 pounds than it is to lose five pounds and so you just anytime you think of fixing that you yeah yeah whatever <laughs> you don't look you don't look at it for whatever reasons there's there's an idea of shame like god i've given into this thing how many times i don't know how many times i'm gonna have to give into this desire before i realize it hurts it's messing my life up it's killing me literally in some cases how am I going to, you don't, you just don't want to look at that, you know, or, or shame, you know, shame comes in there like, God, nobody else is doing this. I'm doing this, you know, and you feel, you feel alone in that or just the price of what it's going to cost you to get out of the situation is just too big. You just can't, mm -mm, mm -mm, I can't, can't deal with that. You know, that used to happen to me during my, my, uh, finals in college, <laughs> I knew I needed to study. <laughs> I knew I needed to study. I knew I didn't want to study because I hadn't been to class in two weeks. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to, I just, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you become, you come up with more and more ways of not dealing with it. You know, it's like movies are great for not dealing with your problems. You know, calling friends, going out with friends is great for not dealing with your problems. Uh, reddit.com is great for not dealing with your problems, not dealing with your life. And you start distracting yourself. You start pulling yourself in. All of these things fall under that, that uh, heading of tamas. You know, the whole world is composed of those three elements, rajas, tamas, and sattva. Tamas is that inertia, that inability to move, that dark laziness, you know, insolence, those kinds of things, all in tamas. And then rajas is that activity, you know, that, that uh, in its extreme, it's someone who's very frenetic, can't stop moving, won't stop moving, 
you know, is, is running around. They've got the cleanest house on the block. They mow their yard twice a day, you know, <laughs> keep everything tip-top tidy, real perky and happy all the time, you know, just ready to go, and they can't stand you sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> so that's your rajas. And then your sattva is a nice balance, you know, a person that's easygoing, a person who's, who's positive and caring and compassionate, loving, you know, more nurturing. And so tamas is squarely where depression happens, sits there in the middle of it, and uh, we need to find our way out of it. There's several principles uh, for getting an idea of what to do when you're caught. And it doesn't have to be depression. This actually applies to any of your habits that are pulling you away from your ideal, that are, that are not letting you be what you want to be, your ideal person. From, uh, from uh, Vivekananda in Volume 7 of Inspired Talks, he says, Really, good and evil are one. They're both products, both chain products of maya. They are in our own mind, and when the mind is self-poised, neither good or bad affects it. Be perfectly free. Neither can affect it. We enjoy freedom and bliss. Evil is the iron chain, but good is the gold chain. Both are chains. Be free and know once for all that there is no chain for you. Lay hold of the golden chain to loosen the one of iron but throw them both away. The thorn of evil is in our flesh. Take another from the same bush and extract the first thorn, and then throw them both away and be free. So his important part there is that your world exists in your mind. Your world does not exist around you. It is not the circumstance of your world that is creating your life. It is you, your mind, because those things only have a value when they are reflected by you. When you see them as good, when you see them as bad, when you see them as needing to be dealt with or not be dealt with. So you hold within you the definition of your world. The world is not defining you. That's a very important principle because it puts you in the driver's seat and it stops that victim thinking. You know, victim thinking makes you weak. It brings you down. If you don't take responsibility, even if you can justify it in your own mind that it's someone else's fault or someone else's thing, anything that's someone else's fault or someone else's thing, you can do nothing about. So why bother with that? Own what you can own and do what you can with what you've got. It is, this world is your mind. Your mind is this world, not the other way around. He says in his lessons on Raja Yoga, he says the easiest way to get hold of the mind is to sit quiet and let it drift where it will for a while. Hold fast to the idea, I am the witness watching my mind drifting. The mind is not I. Then see it. Think as if there were a thing entirely apart from yourself. Identify yourself with God, never with matter or the mind. Picture the mind as a calm lake stretched before you and the thoughts that come and go as bubbles rising on the breaking, uh, and breaking on its surface. Make no effort to control the thoughts, but watch them and follow them in imagination as they float away. This will gradually lessen the circles, for the mind rages over wide circles of thought and those circles widen out into ever-increasing circles as in a pond when you throw a stone. We want to reverse this process. 
and starting with a huge circle, make it narrower until at last we can fix the mind on one point and make it stay there. Hold to the idea, I am not the mind. I see that I am thinking. I am watching my mind act. And each day the identification of yourself with your thought and feeling will grow less until at last you can entirely separate yourself from the mind and actually know it to be apart from yourself. All right. So we've got this notion that everything is the mind. This whole world gets reflected you know, off of your mind. You give it the values. You give it the, the, the subjective meanings. And then the second part is that you are not your mind. You're separate from it. And you can use a technique like this one from, from Vivekananda in, in Raja Yoga of just sitting there and reminding yourself you're just watching. The, let, the, let the mind be a movie screen. Let it be your television. Don't attach to the thoughts. Don't use the word I in there anywhere. You know, and it begins with instead of saying I am depressed, you say the mind is depressed. And I'm watching that depression. The mind is happy. I'm watching that happiness. The mind is content. I'm watching that contentedness. And to put that into practice, to give yourself that little bit of space there. Because if you identify with the mind, if you identify with the body, I'm thinking, I'm depressed, I'm happy, I'm sad, then you're in the vehicle. You can't control, you know, that that it's, it's, you are the passenger and you have to go where it goes. And that's why when the mind gets depressed, your whole world turns black. And you can't find your way out, you know. When you're down, you're completely down. When you're up, you're completely up. But you have to know that you are separate and apart from mind. Everything is mind, and you're separate from it, and watching it, and seeing it, and giving it that separation, that space to where, from that vantage point, then you can be unaffected, or affected least by it, so that it doesn't then cycle into your bad behaviors, with those, just those two principles, there's a lot of things that you can do around the way you think, around your depression. You know, one of them <clears throat> is when he says, always identify with yourself with God and not with the body or mind. What he's saying there, every one of us has, I'm going to assume every one of us because I don't think I'm that far out. Every one of us has two voices going on in our head, right? The one saying, mm-hmm, get the pizza, and the other one saying, mm, you don't really need the pizza, Right? And one of those two voices you're going to attach your eye to. You're going to put your eye on one side of those two voices, and you're going to argue with the other side. Now, in our, in our less successful times, we'll attach our eye to wanting pizza. You know? But what Vivekananda is saying here is don't attach to things that involve the senses and body. Attach your, attach your eye to the higher ideal. I don't need that pizza. That's also a valid desire in you. I don't need that pizza. You know, so attach yourself to the higher ideal, and the higher ideal is always the one that's not dependent on the senses and the body. So take the higher ideal and put your eye behind that to kind of counter the thing. In our in our in our minds, most of the time, this conscience conscience is this nagging thing that's always trying to ruin our fun, <laughs> trying to bring everything down. The odd thing is, is that that is your true voice. That's the voice of your higher ideal. That's the voice of who you want to be saying, you shouldn't eat that french fry. You really should pay your bills. You really should sit down and study right now. You really shouldn't watch Golden Girls for the ninth time in a row today. (laughs) You shouldn't shouldn't Netflix binge tonight. You should actually prepare your lecture for tomorrow. 
You know, it's those kinds of think that kind of thinking. And instead of putting your eye on the wrong side and always battling with your conscience, put your eye with your conscience. That's the voice of God, as you will. That's the voice of your ideal, if you will. That's how you don't identify with the body and the senses. You identify with that higher voice. So put that in there. Celebrate small victories more than recognizing your defeats, even if they're ridiculous. Even if they're ridiculous. You know, if, you, if you're not wanting to study at all and you sit down and manage to get yourself to read a paragraph before you watch another 40 minutes of Golden Girls, don't get down on yourself because, oh God, I only read one paragraph and then I watched TV for an hour. Focus on the success. You read. You read a whole paragraph. Good for you. You read the paragraph. And don't be tongue-in-cheek about it. Really honor yourself for having made a small step. I read one paragraph. I'm going to read two paragraphs next time, <laughs> you know, as soon as I finish this show. You know. But start congratulating yourself. Recognize the positive things about yourself instead of reinforcing the negative things about yourself. Be willing to do that honestly. You know, we talk about, I talk about a lot, this inner voice. You have to learn to love yourself before you can love anybody else. If you can't be encouraging and kind and, and positive and grow, grow a beautiful person of yourself, then you're not going to be able to do that with the world around you, regardless of what your religion is, regardless of what your beliefs are, regardless of what motivational posters you have in your office. If you're not being that way with yourself, you won't be that way with anybody else. So recognize your successes and congratulate yourself on those successes. Be happy about them. You have to silence that seemingly innocuous voice inside that counters what you're doing. Uh, for me, a, a good example of this is like when Swami A is out of town, I have to open the shrine in the morning. So I have to get up at 4.45, which kills me. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't kill me. But there's two ways to get up out of bed at 4.45. There's two ways, and I've watched both ways carefully, and I'm a big practitioner of the second way. The first way is to react to the alarm with, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, good God, is it 4.45? I, I have not had enough sleep. You know, Where is it? Get it, get it out of here. Okay, where you start, you start debating. The other one is like, okay, okay, I've got to get up. Oh, God, I don't want to get up. And you start paying attention to how warm the sheets are and how soft the pillow is and how you were just drifting off, you know, and uh, why was it I was awake for two hours in the middle of the night, and now when I'm ready to go to sleep, it's time to get up? You know, you have that conversation. Call yourself to stop those voices. Even though a lot of times we make, they're, they're funny to us, we kind of, you kind of, at least I do, I laugh when I start thinking like that. But in a subtle way, it makes it difficult to get up. If, on the other hand, you hear that alarm, you don't have a conversation. An alarm is not an invitation to a conversation. An alarm says, get up. Get up. Don't let any other thought come into your mind. Be disciplined about that. Just, just, I'm getting up. Just get up and, and don't get halfway up. <laughs> Turning the light on and laying there is not getting up, you know. Turning the light on and sitting up on the edge of your bed is not getting up. Getting out of bed and going to the shower is getting up. Taking your shower, you know, doing the whole, the whole gamut, the commitment, full-on commitment. There's no slipping back into bed, you know, with your hair wet. <laughs> so make that full commitment. 
when you go. And, and don't let those voices come in that, even, that, that undermine your success. You know, even, a lot of times, like I said, we make humor of them. We make them funny voices. Like, oh, my God. You know, I can't do this again or whatever. Don't. You know, I'm getting up. It's time to get up. Go forward. Identify your trigger thoughts. Okay, this is a big part of CBT, or that cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of thinking that we have in our head that we've identified with that isn't, val- that isn't valid, it isn't true, but we have assumed it was true and reacted to it as true for so long that we don't even hear it anymore. I'm fat. You know, I can't, I can't do that. I've, I tried to do that 30 times. You know, I can't, I can't do it. It's, that, it's a negative voice that undermines even the inkling of improvement, the thought of improvement in yourself. You know, you immediately jump on it. I'm, I've tried that so many times. I'm just not a good studier. I'm, I just can't do that. You know, or, uh, you know, uh, I, th- that thought, that smelling pizza, that I always come back to. <laughs> I'm going to become totally consumed with pizza if I keep talking about it like this. But this, this notion that you smell the pizza and you're like, oh, I want pizza. Wait, is that an honest statement? Is that a true statement? You know, pizza's pleasant and whatnot, but I'm, you know, pushing 200 and I've got a clogged artery and, uh, you know, I already can't walk up the hill without gasping for breath. I don't think I really do want that pizza. I think that's a myth. I think the idea that I want pizza isn't true. It's, it's a narrow form of thought where I'm only considering pizza between this step and the next step. I'm not considering pizza in my life, in the way that I live overall. The fact that it's not going to make me happy. It's not going to bring me where I want to go. So look at the things that trigger sequences of thought in your mind. And you do that how? By doing what he says in that Raja Yoga paragraph there. Through your practice, spending time watching your mind so that when you're walking down the street and somebody's looking at your pimple, you'll know that they're not. That the mind is wandering about ridiculous things and setting up an idea of self on ridiculous notions, you know, and becoming concerned with things that are going to build a life on delusion and uh, on confusion rather than help. So pay attention to that. Identify those trigger thoughts and those false assumptions that you make and experiment. Turn your life into an experiment to see what you can do to think differently, to see what you do. When you, do, when you think of ways that you can not, you know, <laughs> not be triggered, you know, not have those red lights go on. Uh, and you have to do a lot of thinking about it. A lot of the homework that I had to do for uh, um, the CBT was a, a questionnaire. And, it, and, and any time that uh, I would feel depressed, I would write about what I was thinking and what I was feeling and what were my assumptions that I'm making about being depressed, you know, what am I blaming it on, where am I thinking that it comes from, and then studying those things, are they valid, are they true, do other people, do I see other people living that way, acting that way, what, what in me is making me think that way, go that way, and start coming up with different ways of thinking, you know. So, like, uh, even this morning, because <laughs> it was one of those mornings where the alarm went off, and I was, I was nowhere in the room when the alarm went off. I was sound asleep. And it went off, and, you know, I've been practicing these things for a while, so my first thought this morning was like, yes, let's go. 
not because I was really feeling like, yes, let's go, but because I wasn't going to be like, oh, God, I, don't, I can't do this again. You know? And to start off with a yes, let's go and laugh about it is still a more positive and better start than getting up and dragging all the other thoughts along with you out of bed. So come up with new ways of thinking. And even though at first they don't really seem to be genuine, they are genuine because they are attached to the higher self, to your nature. They will improve you as, as, a, as a portal through which God can be seen, <laughs> like Thakur said, Ramakrishna said. You know, that the more you get your mind out of the way, your true nature, which is love, which is the image of God that you were created in, manifests and begins to express itself freely and not through all of the weird refractions that we, that we get caught up in. He says, give up the identification with the body and stand up. Everything is. Cherish positive thoughts. By dwelling too much upon nashti nashti, it is not, it is not. He's talking about India. The whole country is going to ruin. Soham, soham, shivo hum. I am he, I am he, I am Shiva. What a botheration that in every, every soul is infinite strength, that you should turn to yourselves, turn yourselves into cats and dogs by harboring negative thoughts. Who dares to preach negativism? What do you call weak and powerless? Shivo hum, shivo hum. I am Shiva. The external badge does not confer spirituality. It is same-sidedness to all beings, which is the test of a liberated soul. I am Shiva, the essence of knowledge and bliss. So it's that exertion of your positive nature. We've talked about this before. You can say three things about yourself. Hold true to them. You are Sat-Chit-Ananda. I exist. That's an easy one. I am love. Not such an easy one. I am intelligent, easy one. Those are the three characteristics that, that the scriptures allow us to attach to ourselves. Satchitananda. Anything else you say about yourself is a lie, is a delusion of your mind. I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm hungry. All of those things. You are none of those things. The mind may be depressed, the mind may be angry, the mind may be jealous. You are not. You are that ever-pure, undifferentiated nature of God. I am love. Put that into the mind. Think positively. Assert that identity and become that. Let that ray of light come out instead of the weird one that would come out otherwise. You know? Everything that we are is the result of habit. That gives us consolation because it is only habit and we can make it and unmake it at any time. Never say any man is hopeless because he only represents a character, a bundle of habits, which can be checked by new and better ones. Character is repeated habits, and repeated habits alone can form character. So it's that idea. You want to change something? Change your habits. Change your habits. Look at the things that you do every day that reinforce you know, what you do. If you get up, like for me, you know, I would get stuck on Reddit. Dot com at one point. You know, you get up in the morning, first thing you do after breakfast is flip on the computer and read the news. Seems harmless enough, but the fifth place I'd always end up on was reddit.com, and reddit.com doesn't have a bottom. <laughs> you can just keep going, and it will show you one funny picture after funny picture after funny picture after funny saying after funny article, and it just suddenly two hours has gone by, and you've done nothing, you know? So look at your habits and change them. 
That's the key. Change your habits. You know, that mint gold. There's a great poem by Hafiz, and I'm going over time here. There's a great poem by Hafiz that says, Hopefully you got some good rest last night. Why go into the city or the fields without first kissing the friend who always stands at your door? It only takes a second. Habits are human nature. Why not create some that will mint gold? Your arms are violin bows, always moving. I have become very conscious upon whom we all play. Thus my eyes have filled with warm, soft oceans of divine music where jeweled dolphins dance and leap out into this world. You know, so remind yourself of that. Create habits that will mint gold. And they don't have to be big steps. Like I said, that doesn't mean you have to get up and never turn on your computer and read the news. It means that maybe tomorrow when I get up, before I turn on the computer, I'm going to spend 39 seconds reading the Gita. <laughs> so I'll read a few verses in the Gita, and then I'll turn on the computer and spend my two hours on Reddit. <laughs> but see, what the, the trick in that is that, that that 39 seconds in Gita will grow. You know, because that's where the real contentment will come from. And when you do enough habits, when you change enough habits that mint gold, that mint some of that contentment, that mint some of that inner light, that inner happiness about being true to yourself, that becomes the preferable activity. It may take a few years to get there. It may take a while for those things to take root. But they do. And they do it because you give them a foot in the door. You just make a small change. You know, changes in habit are only successful in small steps and small doses. If you if you try the type A approach, you know, I'm going to spend an hour reading tomorrow and then an hour singing devotional music and 10 minutes reading the news. You'll probably do that for two days, maybe the third day, and then you're going to start doing that Adam and Eve trip. You're just not going to look. like You're just suddenly magically not going to see the Gita there and somehow the computer oh, look, it's on, I, I just check email real quick. And the whole time, just not looking, not looking, not looking, because that's the nature of Maya. The nature of Maya covers, forgets, doesn't see. You know, So don't let yourself go that direction. Make that small change, stick to it, and when you have a ridiculously small success, make a huge deal out of it. Bring out the brass bands, dance around your room. I got up on time this morning. I got up on time, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. He says, you have to, the, the final point with that, you know, when, when, when uh, Vivekananda was writing to uh, one of his devotees in New York, he said, liberty is the first condition of growth. Just as a man has liberty to think and speak, so he must have liberty in food, dress, marriage, and in every other thing, so long as he does not injure others. Now, what, do I, what am I going to do with that? Liberty. Liberty is a necessary component. You have to give yourself permission to change. I know that sounds really crazy to say that. But you have to give yourself permission to change. Your mind has constructed its current state out of very logical, progressive kinds of thinking. You know, it has made up reasons and excuses and understandings and arguments for everything that you do. And everything that you think, it's all going to seem perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical, and infallible. You have to give yourself permission to question that. You have to give your permission to step back and say, you know what, my life's not working. I'm not what I want to be. 
I'm not getting where I want to go. This is not what I thought of when I dreamed of life when I was 12. You know, you have to give yourself permission to make a change, to take a risk. And a lot of times you're risking failure, you know, because these habits, it takes a while to change them. It takes a while to see success. And you're the one that has to pick yourself up. You know, that's why Mother says the grace of God is easy to attain. It's the grace of one's own mind that's difficult indeed. So you have to keep yourself on board. You have to give yourself permission to go forward. He ends with a great, uh, in his lecture on the Gita, Vivekananda says, As I always preach that you should not decry a man by calling him a sinner, but that you should draw his attention to the omnipotent power that is in him. In the same way does the Bhagavan speak to Arjuna in the Gita. It does not befit you. You are the Atman, imperishable, beyond all evil. Having forgotten your real nature, you have, by thinking yourself a sinner, as one afflicted with bodily evils and mental grief, you have made yourself so. This does not befit you, says the Bhagavan. Do not yield to unmanliness, O son of Pritha. There is in the world neither sin nor misery, neither disease nor grief. If there is anything in the world which can be called sin, it is this, fear. Know that any work which brings out the latent power in you is virtue, and that which makes your body or mind weak is sin. Shake off this weakness, this faint-heartedness. You are a hero. This is unbecoming of you to think yourself otherwise. That's straight from the Gita. If you want to hold that as the scripture directly from the Lord, that's what he says. Re-exert your nature which is not weakness and sinfulness and defeat. You are created in the image of God, the image of love. Corinthians paints a beautiful picture. We've talked about that before. Love is patient and kind, giving. Love builds up, you know, rejoices in the right, keeps no record of wrong. These are your nature. This is what you are. Remember that. Exert that, that you might be that. And be free. <coughs> Let's take a moment.